Well, good morning. As the youths make their way out, bye-bye, youths. See you, young ones. Well, thank you for coming out this morning. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brock Ashley, and as Doug mentioned, uh, I'm getting an opportunity to speak to you here because uh, Mike is away at seminary, getting smarter. He'll be so much smarter by the time he comes back, we'll probably barely be able to tolerate him. It'd be so wonderful. But very thankful to be here today. And what we're going to do this morning is a bit of a departure from what we typically do. If you've been with us any amount of time at Parkland Chapel, we usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible. But here we are in a spot where we've ended up uh, Proverbs, as Mike finished that up last week with Proverbs 31. And he's going to be diving into Romans here in the next couple weeks. But in the meantime, I think really he didn't want me to mess up the start of Romans. So he gave me the chance to do a topical message. So what the Lord really laid on my heart a few weeks ago was the waiting, and I did rip off a Tom Petty song title, so if you're going to rip off anybody, it's good to rip off the late, great Tom Petty, but that the waiting is the hardest part. And with that in mind, you know, waiting really is something that I think all of us can attest to that we love it. Don't we? Don't we love to go to the cell phone store, which for some reason, no matter what it is, it takes two or three hours just to get, even though it involves like pushing two buttons, it come to find out, right? We love that. We love sitting behind the guy at the stop sign who, for whatever reason, he can't remember if the gas pedal's on the right or the left. Love that guy, right? And we love going to the restaurant where even though they've served billions and billions according to the sign, they still can't manage to make your hamburger right in anything under 20 minutes. But all this being said, this idea of waiting for us is very much counterculture. It's very counterintuitive to how we live today as Americans. So much so that, in fact, I've sat in a lot of different uh, discussions and reviews for employees, and one of the things that we uh, in corporate America want to promote people based on is this sense of urgency. Does this person have a sense of urgency? And you, oftentimes people are demoted if they don't have, and they're promoted if they do have. But what I want to talk to you about today is that waiting is very much a biblical concept. And in fact, it even has its beginning in the beginning, much like our salvation does. So before we get to our key text, which is taken in the book of Isaiah, I'd like to start in the Gospel of John. As we look at our salvation story in John chapter 1, verse 1. So turn with me there if you would in John chapter 1 verse 1 and what we would read is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it and then if we skip ahead to verse 14 We would see, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning, our salvation story didn't start with the Christmas story that we just covered a couple weeks ago, and it didn't start with the uh, crucifixion of Jesus that we're covering in the book of Mark on Wednesday nights, and in fact, it started even before time and before creation. And to back that up, if you turn with me to the right in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 
And we pick up here what Peter says is knowing that you are not uh, redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So our salvation story really began even before we were created. Now, many of you have families, and as you think about this, you think about the people you love the most, even as much as you love them, do you love them enough that even before they were created or a part of your life, that you would die for them? That you would die for them, even knowing the way they would hurt you? And then think about people that you just know. Forget even your family, just people you care about that are outside of that. Do you care about them enough that you would put your life on the line for them, even before they entered your life? And that's the kind of love we're talking about that Jesus has for us. And that it was foreordained, and and many of you are probably a lot smarter than I am. I had to look this up in Webster, so I went ahead and put what Webster had to say the definition was on the screen, that to foreordain means to appoint in advance. So even prior to creation, Jesus was appointed in advance to do this very thing for us. Not only was he appointed, but I can make the argument that he actually volunteered to do it. He raised his hand and said, I'll go and I'll be that for them. That's how much I love them. So what I wanted to bring about, though, with this idea that our salvation story began at the beginning is that all along the way throughout Scripture, what you see is this theme of waiting on the will of the Lord. That God's plan for salvation and his plan for us really unfolds over the period of time. So this idea of waiting is really embedded into the Scripture as we see God's plan unfold. And many people had tried to pour through the Scriptures and try to get a little bit of insight into God's plans. And what Jesus says in John chapter 5, if we were to turn back there in verse 39, is these guys were pouring through and through the Scriptures. What What he said here in verse 39 is, You search the Scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. So all through the scriptures you see everything pointing back to Jesus. right? And we've, we've talked about this before and even covered a little bit on Wednesday nights. When we even look at beyond the scriptures to their own Jewish traditions, and I won't go into everything we talked about, but those of you that were here, you get a little bit of an inside track, so you're going to know this ahead of time, that even the Passover feast where they would take this matzah bread, this flat bread, and they, at the beginning of the feast, would break it into three parts, and they would wrap the center piece of bread into a cloth and hide it away until the end of their Passover celebration, and then they would break it out, and they would, they would break the bread and share it and pass it around the table. That this piece of bread had a name called a, a fecomen, which in the Greek is translated the coming one. So think about this. In their own Passover feast, they would hide a piece of bread and a cloth and bury it away only to bring it back out to bring the coming one to, to bring sustenance to the people around the table. So you see that this idea of Jesus being the Messiah really was played out through tradition and through Scripture, but the plan was laid out over time. And then there are some uh, predictions that are in the Bible, some prophecies that aren't as hidden as what this may have been, but were very to the point. In Daniel chapter 9, we could see that the prediction of the coming of the Messiah was predicted 
to the very day. That Daniel says there that 483 years, 62 weeks and 7 weeks, that the Messiah would enter into the city of Jerusalem after the commandment that was given uh, to rebuild the walls of the city. And exactly 483 years, if we looked in the book of Nehemiah, all the way until the coming of Christ as he walks into the city that Jesus walked in on that very day. So what we see is as the plan unfolds, as we wait on things to be unveiled, that exactly as God predicted it, exactly as it was prophesied, that this plan for the Messiah occurs and lays out for us throughout Scripture. So with all that being said, and all that as a background, what I really wanted to bring out is that waiting on the Lord involves these three things. And this is probably overly simplistic, but this is what God gave me because I have a simple mind. And he gave me these three things. Patience, persistence, and perspective. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40 as our key text for this morning as we talk about waiting on the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 40 verse 27 begins like this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. So stop right there. What the nation of Israel is stating is they are stating they're not questioning God and his power. They're not questioning his omniscience. What they're really questioning here is they say our just claim is passed over. They're questioning his goodness. That I've, we've got all these problems here as a nation. We've got all these things going on, and yet you can do things, and you are not doing anything in our situation. So let's pick back up in verse 28 and see the response from the pen of Isaiah that God gives them. In verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. Sorry, youths who just left, you're going to faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the promise here given in verse 31 for waiting on the Lord is very bold for us. It, it involves renewing of strength. It involves mounting up on wings like eagles. I like that part. I always wanted to be in the eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Right? That's a pretty bold prediction for us. But as we look at these three uh, points here, let's look at a couple different examples. So begin, if we're going to have a New Testament example and then an Old Testament example, I think the best place to start in the New Testament is, in fact, with Jesus as an example. <clears throat> doesn't get much better than that. So back to the Gospel of John in chapter 2, and as we make our way back that direction, what we're going to see, the scene that is set, is Jesus and some of the disciples are attending a wedding feast in the area of Cana. So close to where Jesus grew up, they're attending a wedding. And a wedding in for the Jewish people, was a big deal. People would take vacations because of these weddings. These were seven-day-long affairs that would happen. And we recently, uh, just a, a few weeks back over Thanksgiving, got the chance, I told some of you, to go to my wife's cousin's bar mitzvah. And, I mean, we were able to see what a Jewish feast looks like. I mean, they threw one unbelievable party for this 13-year-old boy. And I learned something about myself, and it is that I love a macaroni and cheese bar. 
Has anybody, if you've not seen this, it's huge vats of macaroni and cheese, and then they've got all these fixings you can add to it. And I realized I have the appetite of a 13-year-old boy. Me and my tw- the twins and I were so excited for a macaroni and cheese, but my wife less than impressed, but I was, I was ecstatic. But this festival was an even bigger deal than a macaroni and cheese bar, if you can imagine that, right? But <clears throat> here they are, that in the middle of this festival, in verse 3, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, they have no wine. Now, if you're throwing a seven-day-long soiree, and in the middle of it, you run out of the good stuff, that is not a way to have a celebration. But Jesus' response to her is this, in verse 4, woman. What does your concern have to do with me? Now, ladies, before you get bent out of shape, when Jesus responds to his mom, woman, that is not a derogatory way to respond to your mother. That's probably not the best translation. It would be like saying, yes, ma'am, to us today. It was a very respectful way to respond to mom. But this next part of his response is what I really want to pull out. He says, my hour has not yet come. You see, for Jesus, what he understood better than anyone is that as we work through the will of the Lord and as we're patient, it's all dependent upon his timing. So the question is, was Jesus any less capable, any less God at 28 as he was at 30 when his ministry started? Was he any less God at 18 than what he was at 30 when his ministry started? And I think the answer you'd find is decidedly no. He was fully God even at 18 years old. So really, why then would his ministry not start until the appointed time? Because he knew the will of the Father, right? He knew how to stay in step with that, and he could be patient. Even though he had the ability, he could be patient as he waited on the will of the Lord to unfold. So as we look then, this is our New Testament example. Let's flip back to the left in the book of Genesis and look at an Old Testament example. And that of the life of Abraham. And I'm going to kind of skim over the story of Abraham very quickly. But if we started in verse 7 of chapter 12, what you would see is the Lord giving Abraham, Abram at this point, a promise. And his promise is this, that to your descendants, I will give this land. So to your descendants, meaning your children, I will give you the land of Canaan, where they were at, which was the land of Israel that we know today, plus even beyond. So it's this huge parcel of territory to his descendants. And Abraham at this point in time is 75 years old and guess how many descendants he had? Zero. He had none. But God's promise is still here. He's going to have children and these children are going to possess this land. So Abraham believes in that. But then you fast forward some 10 years later into verse or into chapter 16 and what we'll see that Abraham now in his mid-80s still has exactly that many children. No descendants 10 years later. So what he and his wife Sarah decide to do is something that uh, you and I probably try to do a lot of times too. Listen, God's given me a promise in my life. I can tell he wants to do something in my life, but clearly he needs my help. Like he can't do this on his own. He's going to have to have us to assist him just a little bit. So Sarah goes to her husband and says, why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar, the Egyptian, and you go into her and have a child. Now this seems a little bit odd to us in our culture today, but understand this would be very much like having a surrogate mother in our current day and age. So Abraham, like any of us strong-willed men would do, if our wife came to us and offered a young Egyptian handmaiden, uh, he said, no, no, 
Okay, if you insist. So he, he, and, he and Hagar have this child named Ishmael. And listen to the promise that's going to be given about Ishmael from the angel of the Lord in verse 12 of chapter 16. He will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. He's the first wild thing, right? That Abraham, that Abraham and Hagar give birth to this son named Ishmael, this work of the flesh, and this is what we know today is the Arab nations, that he is the father of all the Arab countries. And it starts to bring this into perspective that as we begin to help God out to fulfill his promises, and we do work in our flesh, we see the repercussions of that tend to be widespread. And even to this day, you can look and see as Israel's in the middle of all these Arab nations, it's constant conflict. And it will not ever end until the end of everything. But that's what our flesh does. But then, because God is so good and He's so gracious, in chapter 17, verse 19, we see God's promise coming to fruition. In verse 19, then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and his descendants after him. So God makes it clear that, no, I gave you direction, and this is the direction that it will happen. And at a hundred years old, Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 5, it tells us he was 100 years old when this occurs. So that calls to question, how much time do I give God to do a work in my life? Do I give him 10 years like what Abraham did? Because it's pretty easy for me to sit up here and say, Abraham couldn't be patient and wait on God. I mean, you know, he only gave him 10 years. Rarely do I give God 10 minutes to do anything in my life. I mean, often my prayers are, Lord, this is a problem I have. Fix it and fix it now. I have a sense of urgency about this thing. I need this taken care of. But we don't give God time to do a work in our life. And this is the same spot that Abraham was in. But yet at 100 years old, the plan eventually unfolds. So the issue here for Abraham, while he had some patience, what he lacked, we'll see in the next slide, is he lacked persistence. So again, as we look at persistence, let's go back to our New Testament example and that of the life of Jesus, who in Luke, in the ninth chapter, to set the stage there, what's transpiring is Jesus is getting ready to make his way to Jerusalem, which will really be his final trip that he makes, where everything is going to come to the culmination of his death, burial, and resurrection. What he says in Luke 9.51 is, Now it came to pass, when the time had come up, for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So with his face steadfastly set, knowing the pain and the suffering he was getting ready to go through, he sets his face to go. Even though his disciples are telling him, man, you are crazy. Don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. Don't you understand? But Jesus, knowing the will of the Father, could be persistent because he knew that will. And we're covering this section of Mark on Wednesday nights, but if you turn back with me just a little bit to the left to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, this is Jesus' prayer just hours before he's taken away by the Roman guards to be eventually put to death. He prays this in verse 36, Abba, Papa, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. 
Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus, in his persistence, he was able to be persistent because he understood that he was working in the will of the Father, not in his own will. And that's really where the difficulty comes at for us, is that we try so much to work in our will that it ends up becoming overly burdensome. That we take on all these outside things that we think we're trying to do, and even if it's for good causes, we're trying to do them, but we get worn out. Why? Because we're doing them under our own power and our own strength. And that's not at all what he commands. In fact, what Matthew eleven twenty nine says is this. He says, this is a familiar verse to a lot of you, that take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the promise for following in his will, is that his yoke is easy and his burden was light. And for many of you, you probably don't have the message translation, so I went ahead and put it up here on the screen for you. If you don't, but I like this version. It says, walk with me, work with me, and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. I love that, the unforced rhythms of grace. So as we're trying to work and walk with God, that this rhythm, it's this, this idea of this give and take, this back and forth. We're not going to get it right, right off the bat. It's going to be a little bit of a rhythm. But as we get more in sync with him, it can be unforced. And he can be graceful upon us. That Yeah, I screw up quite a bit, but he's graceful on me. He understands. And he's never going to give me anything too heavy or too ill-fitting. Now the the promise that Jesus had to fulfill of the cross, that seems like it's pretty heavy, but that's too heavy for me. (laughs) That's not too heavy for him. You understand that it wasn't too heavy for him to take. But what I have to bear is going to be perfect for me. The skill set that I need, that I have, is perfectly in line. So if you've got a, a skill, maybe you don't even see it as a skill, understand that that is the thing that God gave you to be able to do what he has laid out before you. So maybe you've got the gift of kindness, and it comes easy to you. Maybe you've got the gift, I've got the gift of being a grouch. No, that's not really a gift. But we, we all have gifts. Maybe you've got, got a, a, a gift of hospitality, but you love to have people over. That, that can be the thing that God uses in your life, and it's easy for you. And if you find that you're doing something and it's too hard, maybe you're outside of your gifting or outside of what the will of the Father is. So just think about that as you go through things. But to go to an Old Testament example then of persistence, now that we have covered this New Testament example of Jesus, the perfect example, let's look at the life of David. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24, where we find David right now, is he is in the caves of Engedi. And to give you a little bit of perspective of what Engedi looks like, and this is also a shameless plug for anybody thinking about the Israel trip, on the right-hand side, you'll see a picture that I took with my very own idol phone last year in Engedi. It's this beautiful, completely out-of-place uh, oasis in the middle of the Judean desert on the edge of the Dead Sea. It's this gorgeous place. And this is where David and his men are camped out. And that picture on the left, by the way, that I didn't mention before is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So both of these sites that you'd be able to see if you make the decision to go on the Israel tour, both uh, equally beautiful. But in in Gedi, as they're hiding from his father-in-law who is pursuing him unto death, now many of you may have a father-in-law that does not like you. 
mine, I question whether he likes me from time to time. But you know what he's never done? He's never thrown a spear at me, and he's never pursued me like a dog to try to kill me. He may have thought about it, but he hasn't acted upon it. But here we see Saul chasing down David, trying to kill him. And this took place over a period of a decade. And so what happens is, as Saul tracks him down into the caves of Engedi, and Saul needs to use the restroom, he ends up going into the one cave which, as uh, fate would have it, David and his men are there in that cave. And what his men say to him is, this is the day, in verse 4, the Lord, which the Lord said to you, Behold, I deliver your enemy into your hand, so you do with him as it seems good to you. And boy, his men are hoping he just lops Saul's head off right there. It would make our lives so much better if you just end it right now. But instead, what David says in verse 6, And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So his enemy is delivered right there before him. And David, because he's persistent in doing the will of the Father, says, nope, not going to do it. God forbid that I do this thing. It was a test for him and a test for his persistence. And David passed with flying colors. So then if we fast forward to the next chapter in chapter 25, David and his men are now out of this area of Engedi, and they're now in the area of Carmel. And they're watching over the sheepfolds of a guy named Nabal. And he sends some of his young men into Nabal because it's a time of sheep shearing. And much like with the feast that we just talked about, uh, when they shear sheep, this is a big deal, uh, and they would throw a huge feast for this sheep shearing. I'll say that five times fast, sheep shearing, and keep your tongue untangled. But uh, at this time, they went in, he sent his young men into Nabal to ask for just a little bit of leftovers. Listen, you're having a big party, just send me a little something to eat our way. Because by the way, we've been out here in the fields, we haven't messed with any of your stuff, we haven't messed with any of your guys. So just give us a little something that we can partake. And instead, Nabal's response is classic. Nabal says, who is David? And we're in verse 10. And who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays that break away, one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and have it killed for my, that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? So basically Nabal, Nabal says, forget it. I'm not giving you anything. And David, in his response, which keep in mind the previous chapter, he was so gracious to this guy trying to kill him. His response to a guy that refused to feed him was in verse, we see it in verse 13. Every man gird on his sword. And so David girded on his sword. About 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. And then we pick up again in verse 22 when David says, May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male that belongs to him by morning light. I mean, David is ready to go out and completely massacre Nabal's entire family and all his servants. Now, this seems like two totally different people that we just read about. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I can be two totally different people. I can be so gracious and kind and caring. And a lot of times it's the people I don't even know that I'm so kind and gracious. And then when it comes to people in my own house that nick my pride just a little bit as opposed to even my pocketbook, I am ready to gird my swords. Gird on the swords, boys. Uh, Dad's going to start lopping off some heads. This is how I'm going to get everybody's attention right here. And that's the way I react. 
because we, we are this dichotomy inside. We are this, this, these two different people that seem to go these different paths. And what really changes here for David isn't as much who he is as a person, but it's his perspective, this last point. And I put it up there on the screen, that our persistence is often greatly affected by our perspective. That while he's hiding in the caves of Engedi, frankly, they're pretty well taken care of. There's fresh water, there's uh, the, the little gazelles, whatever they call them up there. Uh, I think Mike mentioned it a couple weeks ago, that they could eat, they could kill and eat. But now they're out in the middle of this field, they have no water, they have no food because they've been taking care of this guy, and his response is much, much different. So let's look at this last point then as we wrap up. Let's look at perspective. So there are really two different kinds of perspectives we can have. You could have a temporal or an earthly perspective, which is really what the world is driving us to daily, or you can have a heavenly or a divine perspective. And our circumstances, I put it up there, greatly affect our perspective. So if, if you're in your everyday circumstance, it greatly affects how you look at things. And for me, growing up in church my whole life, being around this environment, that every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, we were at the Southern Baptist Church, the First Baptist Church in Casey, Illinois. That's where we were at. And yet, my perspective, because we didn't grow up with a whole lot, was always looking around and seeing what other people had and seeing their success and going, man, I am going to be that. Like, that's the thing I want. I want to be successful. And I was driven by that. So much so that I want to make sure I went to the best college that I could get into, University of Illinois, <clears throat> not Missouri. I wanted to be able to make sure I got a great job right out of school, and I graduated on May the 13th, and on May the 14th I had my job. I was there. I you know, married a beautiful woman who, for whatever reason, uh, I think she, she maybe has some eye troubles, but she stuck with me. And and, you know, we're able to have this family and, and this whole thing that we're able to assemble and put together that under my strength, I was able to be incredibly successful. And yet in that, it was never satisfaction. Because as my, as my viewpoint was always on this earthly, there is no satisfaction with the earthly. Do you understand? That you can never get enough of that thing, whatever that is. That the only satisfaction you will ever find is in the heavenly. So we fast forward and we get an opportunity to move to Farmington, Missouri to restart because I'd found myself completely miserable in the spot that I was in. And my perspective had really never changed. It was still always on success. And what I walked into instead of success was a mess. And it was a disaster for our family. And I had moved us away from everything we knew and cared about some three and a half hours away where we knew no one into financial issues and into uh, you know, personal issues that we'd never really dealt with in my marriage. And all this began to unfold. But at the same time, what God provided was he provided Parkland Chapel. He provided a new family. And he changed our circumstances, which changed my perspective, if you follow me. So our perspective is so affected by our circumstance that while we're doing well, Oftentimes, we can tend to lower our eyes down and we can spend our time looking around in our current situation and on the earthly. And yet when we have these struggles, and my hope for you is that many of you don't have to move 150 miles away from home in order for your perspective to change, but you might. 
And, and a lot of times that happens. Without challenges, we're, we're frankly, we get in a rut and we won't change. We're hard-headed. We're stiff-necked people. And that's really what, what God did for me personally to change my perspective. So let's look then at a New Testament example of someone who had a definite perspective change. And that is the Apostle Paul, who in Acts chapter 9, we see his radical conversion on the road to Damascus, where he sees the glorified and risen Christ so bright and glorious that it blinds Paul, right? But before that, if you back up to his early life, he had done everything he thought he needed to do to be successful inside Judaism. He was a Jew amongst all Jews, in Paul's own words. I mean, he pursued that thing. He had the best education. He had everything he thought nailed down until God completely intervened and changed the way he saw things. And yet, even after that, even after this radical conversion, what we see is Paul essentially being put on the shelf for 14 years. So he sees Christ glorified, and yet he's able to do nothing with this message that God's given him for over a decade. And he mentions this in Galatians 2.1, that finally, after this 14 years, though, he gets a chance to take his message to the Gentiles. So Paul shows some incredible patience with what God has given him. And then we pick back up again with our story after he's made this missionary journey. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and let's see how this mission, these different missions that Paul would go on really went for him. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Picking up in verse 24, not 12, 11, 24. And from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now that's where he's actually whipped 39 times. And that occurred five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I spent in the deep. Boy, that's a great testimony, right? Here's what you're going to get. You're going to follow as hard as you can after the Lord. You're going to get beaten 200 times with a whip. You're going to get beaten with rods, stoned unto death. Perhaps Paul actually died when he was stoned. And three times shipwrecked and a night and a day he spent in the deep. And yet, yet you know what Paul didn't do? He did not quit. He was persistent. And do you know why Paul was persistent? If you flip back with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 18 we can read about Paul's persistent, his persistence. And he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, Paul's perspective was on the glory that was to come. He knew the fact of the matter is, listen, you may suffer all kinds of things in this life, but guess what? You've already won. You've already won if you believe in Jesus. You're already a winner. So in spite of being beaten with rods and shipwrecked, and you know, personally, I've never been beaten with a rod. It doesn't sound like much fun. That's not a great way to promote your ministry. And yet, Paul's able to say, this doesn't even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So at the end, as Paul is really wrapping up his entire ministry in Acts chapter 27, and the, the state we see Paul in here is he's a prisoner of the Romans. 
He's been out at sea, stranded in the Adriatic Sea in the wintertime for two weeks. Now, they've been in the middle of a storm. A two-week-long storm they are now in the middle of. And here's what Paul has to say to all the guys that are on the boat with him, some 200 men. He says, therefore, take heart, men. Take heart. Hey, it's just been two weeks stranded out at sea. Take heart. For I believe God that it will be just as he told it to me. You see, that's where Paul was rooted and grounded. That in spite of being in the middle of a storm for some two weeks straight, he could say to them, take heart, men, for I believe in God. I believe what he told me. So can you say that today? If you're in the middle of a storm, if you're fighting through a battle, can you take heart? Because you know that what God said, what his promises are, they are going to be fulfilled. And what it really calls us into question is where is our faith grounded? Is it grounded in this world or is it grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What Paul says, in, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not 1 Corinthians, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and some translations would even say rooted, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. Paul was rooted and grounded in the gospel. And Mike shared with you just a couple of weeks ago, the gospel is not about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. You understand? So rooted and grounded in Jesus. And that's where Paul found himself. That's how he was able to go through all these trials. And I dare say, many of you here, you've probably been through some trials, probably way worse than me, but Paul's got quite the list that he's been through. And he was able to be rooted and grounded because of the gospel. So lastly, as we wrap up, and, and I did put the lyrics, again, not the, not the belabor Tom Petty too much, but these are great lyrics. On the left-hand side of the screen, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. The waiting for us, oftentimes, even though we've got this belief and this understanding, it's still hard to wait. So let's look one more time at chapter 40, verse 31, at what the promise is there, again, for waiting. In chapter 40, verse 31, to wrap up, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the promise for us, for sticking with it, for waiting, for being persistent and patient and having our perspective is not really, folks, even on this earth. Do you understand? The promise here is actually a promise of heaven. That time when we're going to take up on wings like eagles, we're going to run and not be weary. We're going to walk and not faint. This is a promise of us as we're glorified beyond this life for those that believe in Jesus. And that's, that's really what we're up against. That's what we're being persistent towards. Because if it's just being persistent towards retirement, frankly, that's not that exciting to me, <laughs> at least not anymore. If we're just being persistent to make a million dollars, there's not a lot of promise in that. Or maybe it's to buy that house across the street that we're looking at. Like, all these promises are void. I was talking to Brian Woodson out in the hallway, and he was, we were sharing about rewards cards. And I love what he said. He said he had one of these rewards cards from the grocery store that when he went to look it up and see what the reward was, there was no reward! 
There is no reward. The reward is you just get to keep coming back and scanning the card. And that's the promise, really, of this world, is you just get to keep coming back and scanning it. I'm ready for my reward. There is no reward. I'm ready for my reward. But our reward here, when we're rooted and grounded in Jesus, is beautiful. It's to run and not be weary, right? So that's my prayer for you today. If you're facing challenges, understand that that's the time where you get the chance to shift your perspective. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to share. Thank you for a message that, uh, that really may seem difficult to us in large part because, frankly, Father, we don't like to wait. We live in a very now society where we want our flesh to be satisfied as quickly as possible. And we just don't like to wait, Lord. But thank you for the promise of what waiting will deliver someday. That waiting will deliver a glorification, a time where pain is gone, a time where suffering is removed, a time where we don't have to worry about all the things of this world or our bills that pile up. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. And I do pray... Father, for the folks that are out there that are coming off this Christmas season, and as Doug said, where it's so full of rushing around and hurrying and going from place to place, that we'd be able to stop and take a breath and be able to wait on you to unfold the things that you've already promised for us in our life. So all this I lift up this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.